Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 130. I'm Paul, and on this week's episode, I'm joined here in the Archonnect studio with Keely Kolklu. A fellow Canadian, Keely has spent the last 18 years aggressively exploring the boundaries of architecture. After getting her BARC at McGill, she worked at the prestigious offices of OMA and AMO, Bruce Mao Design, Skidmore, Owings & Merrill, and Atelier Jean Nouvelle, before moving on to her passion of film and eventually starting her own studio in Los Angeles called Keelograph. Our conversation covers her path from a young, artsy girl in a small Canadian town to the founder and CEO of one of today's most celebrated firms specializing in architectural visualization, digital design, branding, and marketing. So can you tell me what originally drew you into architecture? Because you started out studying architecture in undergrad school in, in Canada at McGill. Great school, by the way. Great country. <laughs> fellow, <laughs> fellow Canadians, I, I have a uh, special place for, for them. So what, what originally brought you to architecture? Oh, that's a great question. I think it was a love of drawing throughout my childhood, throughout my teens, and uh, a pretty keen interest in photography as well as a, so as a teenager. Were, so it was kind of the more artistic Definitely. side that mm -hmm. drew you to architecture. Yeah, I was from a small town without a lot of great architecture. Uh -huh. or really iconic architecture at all. So I didn't have much uh, in the way of precedent, but I did discover that this was a thing you could do probably mm -hmm. when I was about 15. And it kind of went from there. And then how was that experience in undergrad kind of taking this creative, mm -hmm. uh, artistic background into a more kind of professional, educational? Yeah, program? it's interesting because we just, uh, a couple of weekends ago was my 20th uh, reunion at McGill, which is where I did my Bachelor of Architecture. And uh, it was a great moment to remember what it was like to be a student at that time and uh, what we all went through. And really to realize how remarkably similar we are as people and professionals now, having had that experience at that time. It was hard because the first year was pre-engineering. So you have all these people that want to enter into architecture as a creative pursuit, but then you have to deal with the very technical requirements of civil engineering or mechanical engineering or what have you and make it through that year to enter into the actual program. So it was a bit of a wake up call that this is not about more than just drawing, say, but it was a wonderful, wonderful time, I think, to be studying architecture. We we're at the very, very forefront of using any kind of digital tools. It was still very much about the layering and the mylar and uh, about the theory Alberto Perez Gomez is one of the professors at the school still, and his influence was really felt in, in every studio. So it was great. I mean, jumping ahead to what you're doing now, mm -hmm. do you wish that there was an element of computers and technology in that early education? Or do you feel like it was better to have a foundation without the... Yeah, I think it was uh, for for me, for my generation, for the background that I was coming from, it was definitely better to do things the way that I did them because it felt like a natural evolution. It felt like the logical next step in the way to realize something. I think now it's probably a very different scenario. You have people with great ability in digital tools before they even enter into that level of, of their education. So it's much more natural. So the reunion, was that specifically the architecture school reunion? Yeah, it was. So how many people were still studying or still practicing architecture? That's a great question. I would say at least 70 to 80 percent of wow. the class. And this was across three years. So from 1996, I believe, to 1999. Pretty much about 70% are still practicing architecture. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty great. That's a yeah. good thing for McGill to, yeah. to uh, claim. I'd attribute a lot of that to the way that architecture works uh, as a profession in Quebec, mm -hmm. where a lot of the projects are open to public tender. And so it encourages young professionals to build their career. There's a lot of support. And they also have a very strong education system, postgraduate 
for architecture. So there are a lot of people teaching and having really fulfilling kind of careers. Mm. So after graduating with your undergraduate degree, you moved on to a a very impressive and colorful time working at some of the most exciting firms in in Europe and and North America. Tell me about that. What was that like? And how did you take that that leap into such prestigious offices? I think I'd like to say it was lucky um, as a, the Canadian in me. <laughs> it was it was a lot of uh, being in the right place at the right time, I think, the opportunity at least. And then, uh, you know, it's a lot of hard work, but you feel very excited about the projects. So all those environments had a similarity in that they really put you out there and give you the chance to see what you can do. So there's not really a cushion in any of those particular offices. And it breeds some great, um, it's tough, but it breeds some really great thought, I think. And and it's exhilarating coming out of school as you do with the thesis high and being sort of thrown into a similar environment is pretty natural for a lot of students. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure these offices don't want these students to get lazy. <laughs> no, there's not a lot of lazy. No. And no. In fact, in the, the time that I was at OMA, there weren't enough computers and chairs really for everyone. So you wanted to make sure you got to the office early so you could grab a computer and grab a chair. So it was, it was almost like a, you know, musical chairs even. <laughs> it was, wow. Everything was on the line. So otherwise you're just working on the ground. You're standing up, you're We're, building models, you're, yeah, wow. you're trying to share computer. So you worked at OMA mm-hmm. and AMO? Yes. And what were your responsibilities? When I worked at OMA, I was specifically working on the Seattle Public Library, which was a wonderful project to be on and some incredible people. And I was working primarily on uh, coordinating the interior design and the landscape design for that project during that moment of transition into design development. And then when we moved to New York, um, opened the office in New York, about a year into my experience there, I relocated to New York and it was a very small group of us at that time. It was just the Seattle team, some people on the Prada team, and then uh, the ammo people. And, uh, you know, we shared just this tiny room and we just lots of conversations and a lot of sharing of ideas. So I was able to to try out what it would be like to really cross the line, quite literally, and try and work in the more, I'd say, I guess, subjective side of, of the profession or the more, I guess, less defined by actual buildings and more about thought, which is something that I had never done before. And uh, it was super exciting. So there's a lot of reading, a lot of researching, tons and tons and tons of reading at AMO. Uh, to get myself up to speed, but also that was a requirement of being on that team at that time. So most people had come through Harvard and through the program, and I was coming from a very different background. And it was uh, it was one of the best educations I've ever had, just being able to be a part of these conversations and there's a lot of diagram making. <laughs> and we were also working with Two by Four, who we shared the space with, and their mm-hmm. graphic design firm, and that was also incredibly exciting just to see how they approached a project from a graphic, sort of a graphic side. And yeah, really just to be a part of these bigger idea-driven projects. Yeah, that must have been an extremely stimulating environment to be in around all of those brilliant and talented designers. It was super terrifying, but super awesome. (laughs) I'm sure that there are moments of like, oh my God. Yeah, I'm sure it forced you to raise the bar. Oh yeah, Um, yeah. Were you at all unhappy with the work you were doing that was more architectural or were you just seeking something different to kind of expand your experience? I think I was seeking something. I think mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason, I wanted to continue to to develop 
you know, as a as an architect or as whatever it was that I was ultimately going to be. And I wanted to see what else was out there, what else was possible. Uh, so I just kept wanting to learn. Uh, and that kind of continues. And that desire to continue wanting to learn, is that what led you to move on from ammo to, mm -hmm. uh, was it Bruce Mount? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. That's a pretty good transition. It yeah, like. I thought maybe I can do this. You know, maybe I can legitimately cross the line again into a very different field. And uh, it was under the, I'd say, original, I guess the role originally was as an architect there working on the Downsview Park project. But it quickly began to be other things as things happened to be at that office. So I was working on uh, exhibition design from a, a really different perspective. It wasn't what I know now exhibition design would be. It was about doing things in a totally different way. Uh, and that's very, very exhilarating. So, I mean, OMA, MO, Bruce Mao, these are all very creative, multidisciplinary practices. Mm -hmm. How would you define kind of how those two or three different practices are distinctive from each other? That's an interesting question. I do think it is about, you know, the articulation of an idea from an architectural perspective. And then the other two are progressively more about communicating ideas. One is more, I'd say, practical, for lack of a better word. It's almost a, how do you democratize architecture so that it's understood in a sort of wonderful way? And that would, that would be Bruce Mao. Okay. Um, and so he had, a, he had a really strong interest um, at that time in how we communicate projects to people. And that there's a sort of esoteric nature of architectural drawing and anything digital, certainly at that time, that made it pretty inaccessible to most most people. So a project like Downsview Park, for instance, how do you communicate the idea of a park for the public through a landscape drawing? You know, it's really hard to understand. And we didn't have these same tools that we have now. And so it became about using language and using uh, graphics and events to explain architecture. And uh, ammo was, uh, it was really, you know, I, I think back on how does this relate to architecture? And it was all of the, the sort of context within which architecture is created is getting analyzed. And there's almost like an architectural process being used to do research in these various things. So the project I worked on primarily was Wired Magazine Redesign. And that was such an exciting, exciting and transformative project because all the research that was required to be able to function on a team like that led me to things like the Whole Earth Catalog and learning about Stuart Brand and really the origins of strategic planning and all these really formative ideas that are right now very, you know, relevant. They're all, they've been relevant, obviously, since uh, since Royal Dutch Shell, but it's it's very, very, yeah, it's definitely resurfacing. It's part of the what you hear people talking about. So it's they all seem connected in a in a really strange way. But the one thing that unifies them all is that it's it's for the public. So it's how either media consumes the idea of architecture, the process of architecture, how a building like the library is inhabited by the public, and how the public is part of the design process. How we communicate to communities the potential of their neighborhood, and that definitely stuck with me. So from there, you moved on again. Was it Jean Nouvel's office after that? Uh, no, I went to Los Angeles to break into film. <laughs> so Actually you moved here. outside of architecture. Yeah, I did. I went, um, I was working at uh, at BMD and digital, you know, visual effects was was becoming more sort of prevalent in some of the projects we were doing. There was a team doing some animation work and some rendering work. It was pretty early days. 
And uh, I always had an interest in cinema. That was my thesis at McGill. And I kind of left it, that sort of interest for a while and was getting more into it in Toronto, just trying to engage in, in some of those communities. And I read an article in the Globe and Mail about, it was the cat in the hat and the production on that. And it, it had been designed by architects digitally using digital tools. And it was called Previs. Mm-hmm. And they interviewed Alex McDowell and um, the team who had done this work. And I was so, so thrilled by that idea that I really wanted to check it out and figure out how to be a part. And I was lucky to get a, a position working as a previs artist. So were you coming with the skills and the tools? Nothing. I so just had the desire to learn it. Because a lot of, especially here in LA, a lot of people that study architecture do go into that industry. I have a few friends yeah. that have graduated in architecture and work in previs and mm-hmm. and, uh, and CG and in movies because those tools were were developed yep. in school. But for you, you just again no. you took you took a one eighty and you and you just explored your your own yeah passions. yeah. I sort of felt this is something that I've wanted to do for some time, and I. You know, I've sort of developed this side of myself to a point where I can see where that's going to go. And I was at a moment, I was about 30 some odd years old, 30, maybe 31. And it seemed like a a good moment to try and try out this other side of not really architecture, but form making. And I wasn't able to get a visa as a Canadian. I couldn't get in the union. I couldn't do all these things. So I had to get a job as an architect when I first came. Because of the, uh, yeah. the degree that you had. Exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, it's all coming back to me now. Right. Yeah. You probably had <laughs> yeah. the same experience. Similar. Yeah. Yeah. And so I worked at Marmal Radziner and pretty quickly remembered why I left architecture. <laughs> they're an amazing firm and they're incredible. Uh-huh. Uh, it's incredibly, I have such respect, but I, I did realize that, okay, so this is something that I can formally say that I no longer do. Mm-hmm. Um, because honestly, I just was terrible. <laughs> I just... It was, well, I was not able to focus and give it that same attention. I mean, I can imagine that after being in architecture school for five years mm-hmm. and then working with these practices that you worked with right out of school, yeah. Marmel and Radziner, I think, we, yeah, we both agree they do beautiful work, but it's a very different type of oh, yeah. work. It's rigorous and it's yeah. it's almost like another definition of, of architecture and what it is to be an architect working there. So it's was, the only place I've ever worked as an architect. And it wasn't an architect. It was an intern for about one month. Oh, really? And <laughs> I worked in an architecture office. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. It was in the summer of 98. Oh, wow. I had a great time. It was uh, oh, yeah, very little work. Lots right. of hanging out with Ron, who was and awesome. He is really awesome. Yeah. And all of my closest friends here in LA are still the people I met at that job. Mm. So there's something about that. It's a good group of people there. Great. And they... They're doing something right over there because people do seem to really like it. Yeah, for sure. So that was not because of Marwan Radziner's fault, but that was the time in your life where you realized that architecture was not the path that you wanted to yeah, continue down. for sure. So what'd you do next then? Well, I was in a poker group in Venice where I was living and uh, it turned out that a bunch of people in it were previous artists. And I said, gosh, you know, I would love to, this is really why I came down here in the first place. And so we should talk to our producer and see if you can come in at night and try and learn the software. So I did. And I would go in every night after work. And uh, finally, they gave me a shot. At, they sponsored my TN visa <laughs> randomly and gave me a shot at uh, being a, an animator. And I did that for, for quite a while. And even after I returned from France, I went back and went back to them and worked there. And Colin, who was my boss, is still a great friend and we collaborate. So it's been sort of transformed. And I, I worked with Alex. I'm really excited to work with Alex McDowell in a job this past year. Um, oh, you really still? Closed the loop for me, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. that's great. What uh, films did you work on? 
when I was at PLF, I worked on uh, as a super, super junior, junior previous artist on Superman Returns, I think it was. Did you work with David Chow? I don't know. No, he's a good friend of mine. He worked on Superman, too. Oh, did he? Yeah. He's yeah. a previous artist. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the company I was with was called Pixel Liberation Front, or okay. PLF. Uh-huh. And the longest, I'd say, project I worked on there was Iron Man. Mm. And that I got to be there when, you know, script was being finalized, like in the Marvel offices. They were hadn't cast yet all the way through to the shooting and then some post vids, which was really, really thrilling. So the first one. So you loved it. Oh, God, it was such a freaking high. Yeah, it was yeah. so amazing. Being on the set was like uh, nothing I've ever felt before in my life. Uh-huh. And the DP sort of waves to you and says, hey, you know, check this out. It's just so thrilling. Wow. So considering where you were at this point in your in your career, mm-hmm. What made you decide to go back to school, get a graduate degree at SciArc? Yeah, that's a great question. Again, I felt like I'd kind of come to the end of knowing where this path is going. And I had dropped out of my degree when I got offered a job at OMA. I was at Rice on uh, the master's program there. And I always thought, you know, I never quite closed that door. I, I really should complete this side of, of what I do. And I had a super young baby at that time. And Kilograph was just starting but I thought, you know, if I don't do it now, I don't think I'll ever do it. And some part of me always wanted to teach and um, see if that had a potential. And they had a program there that seemed really, really interesting, which they don't have now. And it was called Mediascapes. And it was a bit like a, a small version of the D- DMA program at UCLA, where they teach you processing and things like Max MSP Jitter. And you're learning Arduino. And this was in 2010. And it seemed really, really interesting to me. So this was in 2010. Mm-hmm. You had a, a very young baby. Mm-hmm. I was you, pregnant with my, my second child. Pregnant with your second. And near the end, yeah. You were working at mm-hmm. an architecture firm as a principal of Ferrier. Oh, that's my husband's firm. Okay. Um, yeah, well, he he started his firm around the same time that I started Kilograph. So, so you, you started your own practice. You were working at your husband's architecture yeah. firm pregnant uh-huh. little baby yes. and going to school. Yes. That's crazy. Yeah, it was so, I mean, do you, totally in, in hindsight, <laughs> do you think that that was a good decision to take all that on at once? It seems like you're the kind of person that can handle a lot, but. I don't think it's changed a lot. I mean, honestly, I feel like I kind of need it for whatever reason. I needed that, you know, they sort of balanced each other out. And so I was able to really intensely focus on each thing that I was doing when I was doing it. And granted, this was before we all had, you know, iPhones in our hands all the time. So, so you I, had twice as much time. I had so much <laughs> more time. <laughs> so it's it's very true. I think uh, if I talked to my professors now, I probably wasn't the best student, maybe. Uh, and I didn't enjoy maybe the life of being a SciArc student as much because I had a lot going on elsewhere. But I got so much from that program. Just so much. And what was that? I think I felt a part of Los Angeles in a mm. way that I hadn't when I was working in the film community. I felt like I really understood what it meant to be an architect here because you're always at the forefront of something new and it's it's a place of great experimentation. And I've always had so much respect for that institution, for, for SciArc, really for all the architecture schools here. And so to be, to really understand what it means, I think was, it was important to do that. Yeah, SciArc does a, a really great job of engaging with the city and, and studying the city. I think more so now than when they were on the West Side when I was at SciArc, maybe because exploring the city required, you know, a full day field trip to, yeah. to get somewhere because <laughs> we were the old Playa, Playa oh, right. uh, Del Rey, Marina Del Rey area. So you finished your degree there. And since then, it's been Kilograph. Yes. Right. 
So maybe now is a good time to tell us about Killer Ref. Whenever I've mentioned to a few people that, you know, that we're having you on the show and I never know exactly how to describe kilograph. You know, mm-hmm. it's it, because Neither you do guys we. do a lot of things. I mean, I have a very hard time <laughs> explaining what I do too. It usually depends on who I'm talking to. Right. So how do you mm-hmm. describe what your business is and what you, what you do? Yeah, it's evolved for sure. And I think when you start a business without a business plan or a strategy, that tends to happen. But now, if I describe what we do, we're, we're definitely a creative agency and uh, our primary uh, market is still architecture, real estate development. But we're very, very interested in technology and we're interested in progressing the discourse around technology for architecture, for communicating architecture. And so was that a pretty easy transition to, you had already started the, the, the practice before mm-hmm. st- school, but going from academia to, mm-hmm. to running your own practice, was that was that difficult? Oh, it's, I have to say of all the things I've ever done in my life, running this company is the hardest, for sure. Because you think it's enough just to have ideas and to and to deliver good product. But suddenly you need to be so many things. You need to, as you know, you need to have an MBA. You need to understand accounting practices. You need to understand client management. For us uh, in real estate development, we under, need to understand the cycle of real estate development in the city. Um, and it's constantly amazing to me that these are considered part of the same industry, you know, real estate development and architecture, because the way that they operate is the just the discussions around ideas are so different. And so you really need to know how to position your work for different audiences, let alone how to motivate an office of 30 people to get kind of excited about work and to get kind of the best, I think the best ideas going. Mm-hmm. And they're not always, you know, when you're starting out, the projects might not always be the next airport or it's Often we've sort of been able to build a practice working in on smaller development projects and delivering something that was perhaps unexpected. And that's become part of how we do what we do. We sort of try to do things differently every time, which I think keeps it a bit fresh, but it's it's hard. So you work a lot with architects mm-hmm. and real estate, mm-hmm. people in real estate, I assume developers. Yes. Okay. Primarily developers? Primarily, yeah. So at the core of both of these industries... There's buildings, architecture. Yeah, ideally. (laughs) Yeah, that's the end goal. But I can imagine that the people you work with and their priorities are probably very, very different. Totally different. Can you talk about how it's different to work with architects and Mm -hmm. as it is with like real estate developers? Yeah, uh, definitely. I think um, not going into the, the sort of technical how we do projects differently for different audiences. When you're working with a developer client, you need to understand what their goals are, sort of long term. And that's financial. And that's sort of, uh, it's really financial. So they are funded for whatever their project is. You need to be able to help craft the kind of vision of how this is going to be marketed over the the life cycle of that particular project. So there's more marketing involved. It's more marketing. Yeah. There's more strategy. There is strategy. You're developing different assets. So we'd be developing things like a branding, brand voice, and websites, things like that. Whereas when we're working with an architectural client, it tends to be about uh, the visualization of, of or the experience of the architecture kind of exclusively. Uh, so even the angles that we might choose are very, very different. Or how we would craft a video would be very, very different for both audiences. So in the real estate sector, you're taking on 
more of an advertising agency role. Very much so. Do you ever work with other advertising agencies? Or we do have, you... yeah. Okay. Yeah, we and... have. We've worked as a um, as vendors, uh, and what we're we're hoping to do more now, and we're we're kind of staffing up in this direction, is to take on more of a full service marketing, a kind of uh, agency approach to these development projects and focusing kind of a little bit more on mobility projects where we registered fairly recently as a small business enterprise with Metro, which has allowed us to be at the table on, on some really interesting initiatives. There's a lot happening in Los Angeles in mobility. So we're trying to kind of create a, a sort of agency around that idea, which we hope, you know, hope it works out. Yeah. <laughs> so when starting up your practice, how much of it do you feel like you were having to kind of create as you go and how much were you able to lean on the tools and experience that you picked up in school and, mm -hmm. and with your previous experience working in architecture? Oh, that's that's a great question. I think nothing in the experience of architecture uh, prepares you for what it's like to be a visualization artist or a visualization company when I was in school. So things were not done to that same degree of finish. Uh, and certainly the process wasn't an open process. So you're inviting in feedback at every step when you're a visualization firm. And you really do need to, to be able to communicate really, really clearly every single step of what you're doing. And I feel like even in, in architecture, again, this is kind of a long time ago, so I'm sure things have changed quite a bit. But the way that we presented work to clients was different. So it was presented in terms of section, orthographic drawing or models, and it wasn't really about the language of you know, kind of advertising, like a, a pitch deck or a, an idea, a brand voice that wasn't really part of, of what we did. And when we talk about drawings or renderings, there's so much education required really to be able to get the feedback that we want. So it becomes a, a really different kind of a conversation. So you're talking about, well, this is what we're doing now. This is what you can expect next and really laying that out. And maybe it's a good idea in architecture, but I don't remember ever doing that. These are, these is what you can expect at every single phase. Mm -hmm. It was almost just implied. You needed to know. So that, that might be a process that, that could be beneficial to architects. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And actually my husband and I talk about it sometimes because mm -hmm. there are some things we realize that, wow, talking about it uh, this way or showing a video of how this is going to work really helped us to get to a point of, of agreement with our client. And then he'll say, well, maybe we could do something like that to explain how this you know, system is going to work in the building that they're working on. So do you teach? I don't this semester, but I have. Yeah. So do you teach these types of things that you picked up in the type of work you do? Yeah. Yeah. So you've introduced some try of these to. tricks to uh, architects. I try to. Yeah. 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 So I've done uh, a couple of workshops and it's, it's really fun. Yeah. And we try to talk about you know, presenting your work and setting expectation and being open to feedback and all that kind of thing. How do you feel students are right now in terms of, you know, where they're at technically with visualization? Oh, they're so skilled. I mean, yeah. it's, it's unbelievable. I know. I've seen some student work recently that has just blown me away. It's really, really incredible. Yeah. yeah I think uh, there's so, so, so much that's changed in the way that architecture is represented. So that's another reason why we're kind of pivoting, not away from representation, but looking at more of how can we build a suite of services that are appropriate for this particular project? Because just being a, a vendor or just creating renderings is, it's not as sustainable now as it was maybe 10 years ago. I'm, I'm hearing the same thing from photographer friends that, oh, really? that have made, you know, 
great livings for many years. But now, you know, there's with incredible quality of smartphone cameras and Instagram to kind of hone your skills. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people just kind of emerging out of out of the woodwork wow. that are getting a lot of these jobs, not necessarily because they're better, but uh -huh. sometimes because they're cheaper. Interesting. So when you first started then, what were the services that you were offering? We were just doing renderings. Just renderings. Yeah, we were just doing renderings. And just for architects at the yep, time? Yeah, just for architects. And that then as you grew your business, you recognized new types of services mm -hmm. and new types of industries. Mm -hmm. So how did that happen? Well, I always wanted to do a film for an architectural project because I wanted to see how whatever it was that I learned as a previous artist doing camera animation could be applied. I hadn't seen any really exciting architectural films at that time. Again, a lot's changed. So I was really excited to try and do a, a film project. That was probably the first non-illustration job we did, which was, see, we did a film for, I think it was for Morphosis in like 2010. And so that brought us into that kind of, uh, that level of work. We started doing more animation, which suddenly requires a you know, render farm and more computers and more time and, and all this kind of thing. And once you've built a pipeline, you have to kind of keep sustaining it. So we went looking for more of that kind of work. And then about five years ago, we started doing 360 panoramas, so renderings in 360. And that opened up this uh, opportunity to do more virtual reality work as it was happening. Just out of my own personal curiosity, what type of equipment do you use for 360? Oh, uh, well, we're using 3D Studio Max and V-Ray just so to what render. About the, uh, the camera hardware? Oh, so we were doing it digitally. So we were rendering 360 scenes and then we had... Uh, oh, I think rendered. We just, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So not photographic. Well, we do backgrounds. We uh -huh. just stitch panoramic photography mm -hmm. using uh, that. We've gone through so many different stitching softwares and now we have a just a little 360 camera that mm -hmm. we use. Not anything really high fidelity. We tend to do a lot of it digitally, but that definitely changed things for us. And that's fairly recent. I think maybe four years ago, we shifted into this new way of thinking. Yeah, VR is, it's an incredibly exciting technology that I feel like for years now, it's kind of always feeling like we're almost there, but we're not quite there. Mm -hmm. It seems like there needs to be a kind of a marriage of hardware and software. And it seems like, I, I don't know, from my, I've, I've been assuming that, you know, the work that Apple's doing might be kind of pushing mm -hmm. that more closely with their phone hardware and software connections. When do you feel like VR is going to get to a place where it's going to mature enough where it can be integrated more into the workflow of, of architects? So that's, that's, a, that's a great question. It seems like there's two ways to consider virtual reality as a design tool and then as a communication tool. And I think it's really a split because one is more about process and, and how you communicate something in progress. And the other one is about creating kind of buy-in, you know, and getting people to through an experience or through something really exciting that we don't even know is possible. How do you get them to really understand a space? So VR has this ability, uh, it really it taps into your, your memory uh, and it gets people excited. And then they have this sort of agency over their space. And as a design tool, I think it's really a straightforward space, a communication of space, like it's a spatial proposition. But as a, as a marketing tool and as a kind of entertainment tool, it's got so much potential. I think architecture is already being, people are using Enscape, you know, a lot more now. I don't know what the statistic is. It'd be interesting, but every year it just exponential. What is Enscape? Enscape, yeah. Enscape comes with Revit. It's uh, the VR kind of plug-in for Revit. Mm -hmm. And I think many, many architecture firms are using it. And it's, I think it helps to get people perhaps who don't understand the drawings as well to get in the space. But I think people who are, have been practicing for some time don't need it, maybe. 
because they can already spatialize a sketch, you know, to someone like Michael Graves or Frank Gehry is already spatialized. But you've got this whole group of architects coming up out of school who didn't do a lot of sketching and didn't really think that way. And so they need these tools. So I can't speak so much. Uh, I can't speak to that a, a lot because we don't we don't deal with designing spaces, but we do deal a lot with how you can use a space to communicate an idea, how you can get someone excited in a space, make something really memorable, which for real estate development is, is really important. Can you talk about a recent project that you did utilizing VR? Sure. Uh, well, I can talk about the suspension house, which yeah. is probably the most recent one. That was a, a curiosity project for us. We wanted to see what the potential of these tools were to activate these three things, you know, memory, excitement, and agency. And we took a residential project and I was interested in this idea of the house of memory. So taking a residential project and seeing how we could put ourselves in it and and what are the different scenarios we could run through in this sort of 360 world. And we looked at, we made a list of all the things that you can do in VR that you can't do in reality. It's obviously a pretty extensive list. And kind of out of just pure brainstorming, we came up with this idea of having the whole world in a crystal ball that you could hold in your hands and that maybe there's some way that you can stick your head in the ball and be sort of sucked into the world. <laughs> so we really kind of went, went crazy on it. And there was something about the way that we developed the project as a studio that made it really, really exciting because we wanted everybody to get in there and give us an idea about how they would want or what's the first thing that you would do. So say you are transported Star Trek style into the middle of this room. What's the first thing that you would do? And we made that kind of right there accessible to them. What would be the next thing that you would do? And everyone had sort of slightly different things that they would want to do and want to experience. And so we used, we tried to use sound and we tried to use changes in light and really, you know, the ability to hold on to things and, and grab them. How and, could you do that? Uh, well, we used uh, leap motion to be able to use kind of your hands to track your hands. Uh, we didn't like the idea of controllers because it sort of gets in the way with a lot of a lot of our clients, a lot of artists. So we were using a lot of eye tracking, so grabbing things sort of by looking at them. And yeah, it was it was it was really really fun, and we ended up winning an award for it, which was really surprising and exciting. So right now we're progressing that into an augmented reality project. And again, it's sort of a, it's a workshop. It's kind of a playground for us. What are all these things that we want to experiment with? So how can people experience that? Well, we are going to be at Autodesk University talking about it. It's on our website. But what we're looking at doing is making the experience, um, probably putting it up on Steam. So if you have a Vive or an Oculus Rift, you can try it out. But uh, I think something that we run into a lot with our clients is, you know, you do this big VR experience and then they need a gaming laptop and a, you know, a fancy headset to be able to do it. So what are the ways that we can perhaps put this up on the cloud or online in some way and allow you to be able to experience it at acceptable frame rates? And so we're, we're kind of pushing up against that right now. Have you created a movie that shows what the experience mm -hmm. is like? Yeah. Yep. We have a trailer for the suspension house and it's on our website. So we'll we'll embed that in, yeah, in, please the, do. in the show notes. It shows us so, making it as well uh, and everything else. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So were there a lot of growing pains growing your business from, I mean, in the beginning, was it just you? Yeah. And you just kind of gradually added more, more people? Yeah. Were you just, you know, constantly getting work so it was easy to kind of grow or was, was, yeah. were there any struggles along the way I mean, besides just uh, all the struggles I think looking back it was um, it was a pretty steady growth and the challenge has always been um, when we compare ourselves to companies like us in Europe there isn't necessarily the same base of artists interested in this as a profession so you have a lot of people who are architects who have an interest in renderings but really want to be architects 
or you have people who are in entertainment who might want to do this, but they'd really rather be in entertainment. So finding people that are actually interested in this mission of communicating architecture. We've got a great group now, but it's it's taken some time to to kind of really clarify that we're not going to try and do shots on the next Spider-Man movie. And we're, you know, we're not going to build a building. Mm-hmm. So just be good with that. That's interesting. I, I mean, I can relate to that because my business as well, you know, we we don't hire architects. We're not hiring architects to do architecture, but everybody that we hire has to have a certain skill, but also has to be obsessed sure. with architecture yep. and with, with design. So how would you define the typical person that you would bring on when you're seeking new talent to Kilograph? Well, I can speak to now what we what we look for. I think we're bringing in more creative technologists because everything that we do as an experience needs to live in an accessible place online or uh, as an application. And that requires just a bit more technical knowledge, but also the ability to recognize where that sits within a larger kind of cultural context. Still architects, we're kind of going back to trolling around the thesis at SciArc and looking you know, still the best people that we've we've had working for us come from that background. Otherwise, yeah, I, I think we have quite a few people from not from the United States, and that's just out of pure circumstance. So a number of artists that are from uh, from Europe or from uh, from Mexico, from South America, and uh, it's yeah, it's just been a, it's been a great group sort of recruiting outside of the technical industry of visualization. Uh, that's we've been able to grow well that way. Speaking of Europe, you have an office in mm-hmm. Spain. Yeah, a small, small office in Spain. We have uh, three people there right now. It's in Alicante. And uh, it came out of a relationship with the principal in that firm. Uh, he's worked with us for a number of years and is, is just such an amazing addition uh, to our team and supporter. And then some work we've been doing with the architecture school in Venice. And we would bring them over for 18 months for internships, students. Um, we've had a difficult time keeping them on, on visas. And you know, we invest in them as, as members of our team and the skills that are developed. And we want to be able to retain that talent and those people. And so we found a way by building up a presence in Spain, we can keep a lot of those great people that we bring over and also access that wonderful talent pool and, and some of those great clients in Europe. And you can visit Spain whenever you want and deduct deduct it from your taxes. (laughs) Nice. So you do a, you provide a number of other services beyond VR Mm -hmm. and rendering. You do illustration, which I guess goes back to your original passion in your your youth. You also do 3D illustration and web design, branding, Mm -hmm. marketing. Mm Is that kind of just balanced across? I mean, do you typically on, on a typical day, do you kind of get your hands dirty in every aspect? Yep. Most people in your office yeah, uh, touch I'd on, say, on I'd all those say, different areas. Definitely. Yeah. It's some areas I don't, I'm learning about. And so I kind of have to defer, you know, I'll say, look, I, I know we're talking about, uh, say, you know, some sort of web web development situation, which is the thing that I know the least about. Uh, and so it's a bit of an education again. I kind of thrive on, on learning that stuff. So I, I do kind of get in their faces and say, well, how does this work? And what about this? So I don't know if I'm getting my hands dirty or just really annoying, <laughs> but I definitely try to touch uh, various different things. Yeah. Do you think you're ever going to get to a place where you're going to just want to stop learning new things? <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes when I'm at Starbucks, I just think maybe I want to be a barista. <laughs> That's always been kind of a passion of mine. We're actually going to be starting a line of coffee soon. Oh so. my God. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. We, we actually already have the the beans and the packaging and the design of the label. We just haven't had the energy to or the time to actually launch it yet. But it that's, will be I was going to say this coffee is really good. Oh, yeah. Is this your oh. coffee? 
It's the coffee beans itself are not that great, but the machine we have in here in the office is okay. uh, one of my favorite drip machines. It's a Dutch company called Technivorm. Oh my gosh. It's a mocha master by Technivorm. And, and it can take a, an okay bean like this and, and, and turn it, it into something. That's, uh, that's interesting. Do you know, um, Ryan, uh, there's a, a firm or a firm, a, a coffee company, I guess, that we get our coffee from. They deliver it to our office and they do, they were doing pour overs and stuff like that. And they're here in South Pasadena. And they're both architects. Oh, is it? Two Kids Coffee? Two Kids, yeah. yeah. They used to be in the back of a of an art gallery, right? Did they? I'm not sure. Maybe they did. they did. and now they have yeah. their own shop. So he was, um, he worked for us way back when, when we were doing, we needed, uh, he's a wonderful artist. Rhino did uh, visualizations out of Rhino. So he worked for us for a little while mm. and we've always stayed uh, friendly. And then he said, oh, I'm starting this coffee company and they deliver carafes to our office now uh, once or twice a month. Wow. And we try to get them on to do pour overs when we're doing events. Oh, nice. And it's, I think the architect coffee uh, link is strong. Well, the the, uh, <laughs> the roaster that we're working with is actually also an ex-architect that we have had on the podcast before. Oh, wow. Uh, Yikai, he runs a coffee shop here in LA. He's got a bunch of locations around LA called Cognoscenti. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. He's yeah, got yeah, a yeah. roasting facility now mm-hmm. downtown and uh, a few coffee shops. So it's been a lot of fun working with him okay. in, you know, finding an origin and, and getting the roast profile exactly Okay, right. so, so it wasn't far off wanting to be a barista. It must be part of the DNA. That has always been... <laughs> My backup plan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's terrific. So how do you see Kilograph growing in the next five, 10, 20 years? Mm -hmm. It seems like, and how do you stay on top of like all of the new technologies? Because I mean, in this industry, in in the industry that I work in too, I mean, the web moves very quickly. You Mm -hmm. always have to be thinking about like, you know, when you're working on something that takes six months, you have to be looking at where everybody's going to be in two years. Oh, yeah. How do you stay on top of the technology? So we have a great... We have a great relationship with a with a PR company, and they're very focused on technology. And so they they uh, help us to kind of connect with companies that might be great partners for us. And through these conversations, we're aware of all of the different conferences that are going on. And we actively try to send people out to almost every conference that seems relevant. And then they come back and share what they've learned. We have discussions about what we're going to incorporate, what we aren't. And I just, you know, I, I just am like a ravenous consumer of, you know, things like Medium and, you know, TechCrunch. And I just, I just love trying to figure out what's going on. I'm sure that I'm getting one sixty-fourth of whatever is out there, but it is a constant sort of daily pursuit mm-hmm. to try and stay at least informed in some way. What are some of the uh, most used tools in the office? See, right now, Unreal is probably our biggest, is experiencing the most growth in terms of the number of people adopting it within the office. Definitely 3D Studio Max, which is our kind of uh, workhorse that everybody uses. And then the Adobe Suite, Creative Suite. It's funny, we had to renew our Adobe licenses a couple of days ago. And they're, you know, they're such a huge company that uh, I think we had to, we lost one license and the fellow who, who organizes our tech just had a laugh with the, the salesperson because they said, oh, I guess none of us can send our kids to college now that you guys are dropping a license because we're so tiny. We're just big enough to be considered like corporate accounts. But these, you know, these huge software companies that deal with these huge companies, we're just such a tiny slice of their of their life that, you know, I've often wondered, gosh, maybe we should just develop our own like open source tools or something like that. It just seems pretty amazing the amount that you need to spend on software. I'm sure. Yeah. Maybe you just need to fire a few people so you can. I think maybe that might be. (laughs) (laughs) You can be a small business again. How many people work at Kilograph? Uh, We're 30 right now. 30. Wow. Is that including the team in Spain? 
including the team in Spain? I think so. Yeah, actually, account. And we were talking about this before we started recording, but you work out of the MacArthur Park area in one of the... Um, <laughs> the MacArthur fa- Park area. <laughs> <laughs> it's just yeah. MacArthur Park, right? Yeah, yeah. In, in one of the uh, favorite buildings among architects, the uh, cement yeah. building. Love that building. Yeah. Do you feel like LA, being in LA or maybe that part of LA mm-hmm. um, is important to the work that you do? Or is this something that you could do anywhere? Well, I think being in LA because, you know, my husband is also Canadian. Uh, and uh, given everything that's going on right now, we wonder frequently, why are we here? <laughs> and that, those thoughts go through my mind. Every yeah, day too. yeah, right. And uh, especially having going back to Montreal and, and having family back there, and we're reminded of how important it is to be in Los Angeles, to be able to sit down with clients, uh, and to you know work at the A Plus D Museum, and to just be in that environment with architects is sort of essential to who we are and what we do. It's not just uh, it's not just a job. It's kind of an identity, and we really identify with the city. And when we were just sort of dating, and my husband and I would drive by the cement building and sort of look at it and say, "One day, you know." And it sounds super cheesy, mm-hmm. but uh, the minute we could afford to to get a suite and one was available there, it just seemed like an unbelievable opportunity. And you might be one of the last people to afford to have a suite there. I think, <laughs> I think we are, are already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a very cool building. It's awesome. So anything really exciting that you're working on right now that you can kind of give us a teaser of? Wow, gosh. You know, I think we're starting to work on projects that push the definition of of architecture. So I think we're definitely working on things that are a little bit more in the sort of hypothetical realm, and that helps to serve other industries. So larger companies that are not architecture firms or development firms uh, have actually come uh, requesting work or have given us RFPs or included us in RFPs. And it takes a while for us to think, well, wait, why are we being considered for this? And then you realize, oh, well, you know, we're really good at telling these stories using technology in like a pretty engaging way. And so we're starting to build up that side of what we do, the sort of like experiential storytelling. And those are two really overused buzzwords right now, but I think it's the only way to describe some of the projects we're working on. And I really hope to be able to share some. I'm just trying to think of what I can actually... Let's see, well, we did some work with Ford last year, which Mm -hmm. was really, really exciting with Alex McDowell. So he uh, and a game company were our two main clients. And that was the beginning of realizing that even in a non-rendered, non-high fidelity way, the way that you're describing a city is useful uh, for other purposes. In this case, it was to explain you know, the future of mobility or the future of data using this kind of like archigram collage style. And that was that was really, really interesting. Is that available for people to see? Yeah, it was uh, at the CES, the Consumer Electronics Show last year. And you know, I think we were brought along this process by Alex, and it was really eye-opening, certainly to me, to see the power of these kinds of ways that he was talking about the future of the city. So coming from sort of cinema and entertainment and then really an understanding of how people react in certain environments, in this case, the trade show environment. So that was very, very interesting. And then, you know, moving on to, yeah, to things that are totally outside of architecture, which, uh, gosh, I wish I could talk about them, but I don't think I can. That's what, yeah, it's understandable. <laughs> yeah, probably like I, I can get back to you. <laughs> One of the topics that that Ken, who was unable to join us on this show today, wanted to bring up, which I think was a very interesting question, the topic of diversity is as prominent now as it ever for good reason. How do you 
work with expressing diversity through these environments, these computer generated environments? Is it difficult? Like, how do you how do you kind of create these people and these scenes in a way that kind of represents the type of diversity that we're that is trying to be promoted in general? Well, I think there's the representation of diversity and then there's how we're engaging different communities you know, through through access uh, and allowing kind of access to experiences. So in the sort of visual representation side, we are really conscious of doing, say, a public project in San Francisco or Los Angeles. You need to represent, you know, certain groups. Um, almost all of our work is in commercial. So it's really, really important. And we do invest a lot in getting what we call entourage that's uh, entourage people that are really, you know, specific for projects. But in the tool development side, when we look at some of the applications we're creating, especially for public projects, we are interested in being able to communicate, say, a virtual reality experience to someone who has no access to a VR headset, who might only have a smartphone. So how do we create an equal experience, maybe going through platforms like Facebook or using something that might already be existing on their smartphone to deliver experience? And in that way, you know, it's not as much about diversity, but it's acknowledging that there is, you know, there's economic diversity and everyone should be able to have a say in an equal way about the future of their city. And so I think that's part of what we deal with a lot of the time. And before we wrap this up, there's a, a couple questions that we like to ask our guests. And I didn't give you a heads up on this, so oh, no. you don't have to. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What are you listening to these days and what are you what are you reading? And I would actually like to add another one. What are you watching? Because oh you're goodness. a very visual person. What am I watching? Okay, what am I listening to? What am I reading? And what am I watching? I can think of what I watched most recently, which was Monster High with my nine-year-old. Okay. All right. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let's see. Have been reading. I'm in a book club, but I don't think I've been in like four months. So <laughs> I think I try to read uh, Medium as much as possible. So that kind of thing. And Medium, the, the, yeah, the website. The, yeah. the website. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, there's some some great content on there. And then listening to, gosh, I think we have an Alexa now. So it's always kind of an Alexa war in our house with my kids, oh, my I husband know that. and I. I know that so well. <laughs> so, you know, we'll wake up and we'll do NPR and then uh, I'll be getting my coffee and suddenly Katy Perry's on and or my six-year-old loves Johnny Cash. So we've been listening to a lot of Johnny Cash. Oh, he's got good taste. He does. I don't know why he, he loves Johnny Cash and Queen. Enjoy it while it lasts. My son, when he was six years old, he had really good taste in music and now it's just all oh, junk, junk yeah. pop. <laughs> Oh, man. So I, you know, unfortunately, uh, that is one area of my life where I could certainly invest a little bit more me time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, been, it's been the common good. Well, thanks so much for sitting down and talking with me and thanks telling for having me about me your story. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcConnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at rconnect.com with any questions or suggestions or feedback. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next time.